0: Hello and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Hi,
1: welcome to the Siren Coffee and Science I'm Dr. Elena Beihoff, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Tufts Medical Center and Tufts University School of Medicine. Today's conversation continues to explore the topic of awareness. As a reminder, this includes the many ways healthcare systems are incorporating activities to understand patients' social circumstances, one of which is asking patients at the point of care about things like financial security. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk today with Dr. David Schleifer, who is the Director of Research at Public Agenda a national partisan nonprofit research and public engagement organization. In our conversation, we will explore work we've both been involved in around patients' and caregivers' perspectives about the acceptability of social risk screening in the context of clinical care settings. So, hi, David.
2: Hi. Nice to be talking to you.
1: (laughs) Nice to be talking to you, too. I'm really excited to have this coffee and conversation with you, coffee and science (laughs) conversations. I just kind of wanted to Introduce this conversation that the reason we're on this all together, sponsored by the Siren folks, is because we both did research projects in the same space, thinking about acceptability and perceptions about being asked social risk screening questions. And so I just want to toss it out to David first to kind of give us an overview and talk a little bit about the research that Public Agenda has done in this space. So, David, you've got the sure. floor.
2: As Elena mentioned, so Public Agenda is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and all of our work is about. Giving people a greater voice in the systems and institutions that serve them. So, um, and we do that through qualitative research and survey research as well, and also through public engagement. And with this specific project that we're going to talk about today, we were actually approached by the United Hospital Fund in New York. United Hospital Fund, they were actually doing this larger project where they were convening a learning community of pediatricians and social service providers that were trying to scale up social needs screenings for low-income parents of young children in New York City. Hospital Fund realized that they needed to hear from parents about how receptive they were going to be to discussing social needs with pediatricians and understand how would parents want this to happen? What are parents' ideas for making this work? So public agenda, we held eight focus groups of low-income parents in New York City the summer of 2019, which feels like a long time ago, six groups in English, two, two in Spanish, really to sort of understand, to kind of engage parents on this question of, okay, if, if your pediatrician started asking you about some of these social needs, how would you respond and what would your advice be for pediatricians about how to do that well? Elena, maybe you can talk about the research you did, because I think we looked at different populations and maybe you can tell folks about about your work and how they fit together.
1: Yeah, that's right. As I read the public agenda answer report or brief, I'm sure you'll mention it where people can go and find it later. I read it with great enthusiasm and marked it up all read all over because it was so similar yet importantly different from some of the work I was lucky enough to work on. So I myself am a primary care doctor. Along with my research hat, I, I see patients and I'm well aware of the Outsize effect that social needs have on the ability of my patients to live healthy lifestyles and achieve everything that they want to achieve, and so I'm really interested in the interplay with how social services and social risk relates to the healthcare I provide as a physician. So I got to work with some of the folks at the Siren Group, Laura Gottlieb, who I'm sure is on this call, spearheaded this great uh, multi-site study looking at acceptability from from a patient perspective. So we're physicians asking patients about how they feel about being screened for social risks. And um, Amelia DeMarcus, who I hope is also on this call, she's a new mom, took the kind of quantitative lead. There was a big survey, um, nearly a thousand patients were recruited from 10 different sites across the country, where they were screened for social risks in various care settings, in the ER, in family practice sites, in pediatric practice sites, in internal medicine practice sites. And then after they were screened, they were given a, a survey about the screening questions that they had just answered. And then 10 representatives from each site, so 100 individuals, and you know we refer to them as patients because they were patients at these various care settings, were then asked in the semi-structured, kind of open-ended, qualitative interview How did that go for you? How did it feel? What's your feedback? Did it seem okay? Did it feel okay? How would you recommend changes? And so thinking about from the frame of asking, you know, you just experienced this social risk screen. How did it feel? What do you think? How can we make it better? Or was it good already compared to your methodology where you really said, if a pediatrician were to ask you. So I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit now that we've set up the way the studies were run and how they might be different, um, one from a patient frame, one from just a kind of a community member frame, and the other from a hypothetical frame, if you were to be asked these questions versus are kind of more concrete, you just answered these questions. think, what are your thoughts about those different approaches? And can you highlight some areas where our findings might have been different, or at least talk about your findings?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that difference between a hypothetical and conversation that we were asking about in, in your work, which was like, Okay, this this thing just happened. Um, I think it's it's really important because you know I think this comes through in in the in the report that we wrote, which I I should say it's it's on the public agenda website. It's it's the report's called "It's About Trust." It's on the public agenda website. I think it's on the front page. There'll be a link to it in the recording as well. You know, I think people were skeptical. Well, let me go back a sec. I you know the the way that we really started off the focus groups was actually by asking people, well, what are the things that affect your children's health? And people really saw that very broadly. They talked about nutrition, education, the safety of their neighborhood, environmental issues in their neighborhood, how well they get along with their spouse or partner, a really broad range of issues. And then we said, okay, well, you think about those issues, like where would you go for help with them? And Pediatricians did not come up as a place that people would immediately think to go for help with. Like I'm having trouble paying my rent or I'm worried about affording my electric bill or something. So pediatricians weren't where people were thinking that they could get help. And then we sort of introduced the idea. Well, I mean, we basically said, okay, pediatricians are starting to engage with parents on these questions. So what do you think that would be like for you? And I think for people it was kind of like, there were a few people in the focus groups who said, yeah, my, my has talked to me about some of that stuff. So, it, it, you know, it wasn't that people were, it wasn't that everyone was totally, um, you know, innocent or of this or totally tabula rasa. But I think for a lot of people, it was kind of like, I got to think about that and what that would be like. And, you know, I think they had concerns, which we can talk about more, but I think, well, what are they going to do with this information? Where's this information going to go? are they really going to be able to actually offer me help? That was a big thing that came up. And because people felt like, well, I'm going to disclose this sensitive thing. And then and then what? You know, Are they going to be able to help me? Um, and then I think one of the big things that we we also talked about is that people were concerned that if they were honest and said like, yeah, I do need help with my rent or having my spouse as a substance use issue, um, they're worried that that would caused the pediatrician to call child welfare. on them. And That was a big, a big concern. So I think like all of these things were kind of like, you're liable to be more worried about what it's going to be like than if you actually go through it. And it's like, maybe it's not so bad, you know, or maybe you do actually get that help and have a great outcome and you do get the help you need. And I think the people on our research hadn't had the chance yet, at least to experience that.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up two really interesting points. And so one is like, well, if a, if a doctor asks you, like, you know, how might it, how might that go? How might that be perceived? How might that affect the way I'm cared for or perceived as a parent or a patient? Whereas in our, in our study, because it had just happened, there were no kind of real concrete consequences of, you know, all of a sudden everything has changed and color the entire visit. Um, I think there were, we saw high rates of acceptability is it acceptable? Do you strongly agree, agree, don't agree? The fact that it's, it's acceptable to ask these questions. And the vast majority um, across all sites essentially felt that it was it was pretty acceptable to be asked these questions, having just answered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's even really interesting, I thought in the qualitative work, right, when we ask patients to kind of dive into that, why is it acceptable? How is it acceptable? So many folks talked about it as like a lived experience, right? So I think that, that ties into what you were talking about when you talk about what parents said about what you need to have healthy children, right? You need education, you need community, you need safety, um, you need food, you need housing, all those things. And we were able to kind of tap, in, tap into the lived experience of, well, I'm glad you're asking me about food insecurity because actually it is hard for me to make ends pre-month or, or thank you for asking about housing. Mm-hmm. Housing is the most expensive part of my monthly budget and I can't afford it. And so that, that ability to make the connection where you're asking about things that are relevant and important in the moment and not in just some abstract way that could be misperceived as intrusive. I thought maybe contributed a little bit more to um, our findings that it's, it's actually an okay an okay uh, question to be asked. But I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the, the adult kids difference. So in our study, we definitely included parents, right, pediatric caregivers, um, but we included adults as well. And so we had a, a wide variety of um, patient voices heard. But you mostly focused on parents of children and the number one mm-hmm. concern thinking about child services. And so I was wondering if you had any more thoughts in terms of like why there might be some more concerns or some hesitancy on the part of the the parents in your study.
2: Right. As you said, they they were all parents of young children, so five and under, and they were all low-income parents. So I think that there were these, you know, their concerns about child welfare investigations being triggered. People sort of wanted help, but they were worried that it could come back and bite them, as one of the focus group participants said. And I think that that's, I just think that with children um, in the mix, like there really is something at stake for people. And a lot of participants in the group said, you know, they had seen child welfare investigate friends, family, people in their buildings and whatever. And, And even if it didn't result in loss of custody, the investigation itself is a traumatic experience and people really did not want to go through that. They were worried, afraid of that experience. And I think that there's, you know, we're talking about communities where there is historic trauma from, you know, the helping professions, which are well-meaning professions, but these are communities that tend to experience systemic racism and, and classism and social service systems are, are are part of that, you know, and I, I think it doesn't by any means have to be that way, but I think that was one of the big concerns was like, this is my family that we're talking about. I should say like on the other side of that, as I mentioned, there were a few people who had had conversations with their pediatricians about social needs. There were also a few people who had really great relationships with social workers and they talked about how wonderful those relationships with social workers are. And I think there's the great possibility for this to to really work for people. But I do think there's kind of a learning curve, let's say, for people and maybe an initial sense of like, oh, something, something bad going to come out of this. I think that that was really a, I mean, I think one of the things that you said about the adult population is that people maybe felt like this is something that could benefit that they saw benefits potentially to them directly.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's, I mean, there's two important um, points that you bring up and I want to make sure we get to both of them. And um, I think one of the big ones, and I want to make sure I I address it head on, is the idea of trust, right? The idea of, you know, can you trust your provider? What what is happening with this information? What is being done with this information? And can I trust my provider to use it in my best interest as opposed to report me to child services or report me to social services or or whatever? And I just want to put a pin in that for a moment because I think that's a really big open question. Um, But I also wanted to talk about like, I think what what you were kind of getting back to is like that, um, you know, thinking about, like I think about it in a a primary versus secondary prevention frame, right? From a public health perspective and a medicine perspective, the primary prevention frame is, so we see these kids in either a pediatric clinic or in a community setting who have unmet social needs, right? There's not enough food on the table. There are some safety concerns related to housing. There are some neighborhood safety, like any number of unmet social needs. But does that directly lead to immediate health consequences in the same way that in an adult population we're seeing the longer term downstream health consequences of a life lived with unmet social needs and so just thinking about the framework of primary prevention in kids where sure there may be housing instability sure there may be food insecurity sure there may be you know kind of neighborhood social cohesion questions or gun violence questions but my, my kid is relatively healthy and these questions feel intrusive versus on the adult side. It's like, well, yeah, I can't afford my medications for my three chronic illnesses and I can't afford healthy foods to help me with my obesity or my diabetes. And like, yes, those needs feel more immediate and directly relevant. And so I wanted to, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the immediacy question is important and the way that it came through in in the groups that we did people went right to sort of picturing what it was like to be at the doctor at a doctor's appointment and they've got multiple kids everyone's got an earache everyone's screaming you know they took the bus an hour across town to get there they waited an hour for the appointment to start you know they have like immediate things that they need to address right now and so then the idea of like wait, now the doctor wants to ask me about my mental health and how I'm doing? Like, no, we don't have time for this right now. So I think that that was another, it's a very practical thing, but it was very, very real for people. And I think it kind of points to like, okay, well, what would a practice have to look like in order for those kinds of longer, more complicated conversations to be, Possible. I think the other kind of piece of that is like, not everyone has a great relationship with a, uh, with a pediatric primary care provider and so or an ongoing relationship. And I think that's where the, the trust issue comes in. But you know, I think it's really different to think of someone that you know, and trust and, you know, know is on your side and got your back, saying like, you, you seem stressed versus a maybe well meaning um, person who you've never seen before, comes into the room, takes her blood pressure, running through this list of questionnaires, like asks you all this really sensitive stuff. And you're, you know, who is this person? So I think that that is this not only, as you said, like is this a primary prevention, like is this a something that needs to be addressed right now? And also like, what are the things that actually need to be addressed right now? Like what brought this parent and child into the office on this
1: yeah. yeah, no, I, I think that those points are so are so well taken and so valid when you kind of think about there's big policy pushes from the national level, for at the state level, even from you know private insurance companies, um, just to routinize social risk screening. And so the question is, is it is it always right and fair and the best and in the best interest of our patients? And I think you make a, a really valid point about. When a parent is coming in with an ear infection and screaming kids and has to get to work and there's you know five buses before they can get home, like is that the best time to ask? And and what does it look like to have these longitudinal relationships, right, between care providers and patients? So that A, we can kind of build trust and B that the screening can be a natural extension of of, of one's job as in providing health and well-being, right? And so I guess maybe, maybe now is the time to kind of circle back to that that trust question. And I, I you know, I think it's really important that. And a lot of the work that we have done, especially the qualitative interviews, there has been general consensus that this should not be like a box check when, you know, insurance address, are you smoking, are you homeless? Like that has never been the acceptable approach, but really it needs to be more of a kind of a con- an extension of an, a conversation, like a patient-centered kind of empathic conversation about what are your social circumstances, what are your concerns. And so what were you hearing from your parents and families in your study?
2: What they all said was whether it's a questionnaire or a conversation or whatever, the mode of asking is less important than the relationship and that context of a trusting long-term relationship with the pediatrician. And again, these are this this is not the parent's own personal primary care doctor, but it's their child's pediatrician. If they can have that long running relationship, then they can open the door to these kinds of conversations. In a way, that's a great, that was their advice was like, build a relationship with me and then we can talk. And that's actually great for all kinds of things. Like that is kind of what we would want people's relationships with their pediatric providers to be like long-term trusting. They really know the family. Because I think that that's going to pay all kinds of dividends, not just when we talk about social needs screenings, but, you know, managing all the other things that people are going to come to their to their doctors with.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I think it's getting harder and harder in the way that the healthcare system is existing or implemented now, where there's so much fractured care, there's so much acute care, urgent care, same day, where you're not seeing your doctor, right? And so, you know, if you don't have your doctor, can you just tell somebody who's you know checking you out for your, your infection, your cough, your runny nose, real challenging life circumstances that are getting in the way of you being healthy or you affording medicines or you getting a, a job or any of those kinds of concerns? And so I think these are important considerations when we talk about. The patient perspective, or the family perspective, or the community perspective of answering these social screening questions in the context of a healthcare visit. What is that healthcare visit? What is the purpose of that healthcare visit? And how are we best equipped to not only invite those conversations into our office, but I guess the, there's a good segue to the first Q and A question that's been upvoted from uh, David, which is about being. Providers who are reluctant to screen or the concept of initiating screening if there are no good social services, if we can't um, address any unmet social needs. I would say this is probably the most common pushback question I've encountered. And I, I just wanted your thoughts on it, David, before I kind of jump.
2: In. Yeah, I think this is the question that comes up every time that this topic comes up is in the focus groups that we did in among the parents, there was tension on this question, like whether people would want to just talk it out versus whether people say like, no, there has to be help on the other side. And I feel like in these, in the groups that that I did, you know, it kind of, I feel like it tended to be like, no, there has to be some kind of help there. But, you know, it was just these, you know, that's the nature of focus groups. It was just these people. I think, I I feel like there's room for variation on this. It may just be, and maybe not a satisfying answer, but I think that there may be some patients who really do just want to talk it out. And that does make them feel better. There may be patients who feel like there's a double loss. That's what we called it in the research of, you know, you say you need help and then you don't get it. So then you've kind of lost twice. So overall, my sense is like, okay, there, there should be some kind of help, right? But I wouldn't want that to be an excuse for not trying to engage in these conversations. And maybe, maybe the next webinar or whatever is sort of like, <laughs> okay. So, like, how do you integrate social service referrals into a practice so that that can actually so there is help on the other end?
1: Yeah, I have many big thoughts on this question. I hear everything that you're saying, and I remember I remember reading about in your uh, public agendas report about how there was that high expectation. Well, if you're asking, you should, you should have something to offer. It's an interesting question on a, on a number of levels. So n- level number one, it's the conflation of the idea of like medical screening versus this kind of social screen, right? So we do medical screening so we can identify something early enough to intervene on it with you know to prevent a bad outcome. The, that idea of primary prevention again. But in, in the case of social screening, there is no primary prevention. We're asking because if you're homeless, we kind of want to know about it. Or if you're unhoused, we want to know about it. Or if you can't afford your med, we want to know about it, right? So that goes into some of the National Academy 5As, right? How can we adjust our plan um, to better address your needs based on you know, any sort of unmet social social concerns that you have, right? I'm not going to change your prescription or prescribe something else or add a new medicine, Order an expensive test with a high copay and your high deductible health plan if at the end of the day you can't afford any of it, right? And so I think screening for the kind of adjustment piece, thinking about how to adjust the care that we give to best fit the patient in front of us, I think is a really important aspect of the screening. That it's not just to address the unmet need, but to also think about it as a whole person care plan, right? I'm not going to do anything that you can't afford or that doesn't align with your immediate needs because you have pressing social care issues or, or pressing childcare issues. So that's on the first thought I had about it. And then the second th- thought I had was well, not a thought, it's um, the data from our study, is many <laughs> of the patients felt like it, it, it wasn't necessary. They understood, like they were, they, were, they were wise about the pressures and time constraints of healthcare and said that you're, As a doctor, it is not your job to find me housing or to find me job training or to find me food or to enroll me in, you know, SNAP benefits, which is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamps. It's your job to treat my diseases, but it helps you to treat my diseases if you understand what my social circumstances are. So they saw it as almost like an allyship, having that open conversation. You know, on the one hand, yes, it would. I agree. It would be great if we could do something about everything. And I think it's. I think you're absolutely right. And it's an important next step to think about um, kind of the alignment between community and healthcare to think about addressing those social issues because you can't have health if you don't have a social safety net or social supports or social infrastructure. But on the other hand, not everything can be done through the healthcare system. And so, mm-hmm. um, anyway, that was a very long-winded answer to a very yeah. important question. Yeah. Um, So unfortunately, we're running out of time. (laughs) I knew this would happen. We'd have like a really good conversation and then I'd have to bring it to an abrupt end. So I just wanted to say thank you, David, for joining me in this conversation. I know you have to run to your uh, COVID vaccine. That's all the time we have for today for our conversation about awareness. I just want to thank both David and all of our listeners for joining us today. The next Siren Coffee and Science session is scheduled on March 5th. So mark your calendars, and we will feature Sarah DeSilvi and Michael Baylett, who will together explore building accountability for social risk screening into state Medicaid programs. Thank you, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Joukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb. Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.